Hey, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Ingrid Rojas Contreras is a writer who was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia, and now lives in San Francisco, California. Her first book was the novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree, and her most recent book is a family memoir called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. In this episode, we chat all about language, on writing between two languages and cultures and the evolution of language. We also talk all about anxiety and dreams and much more. I just listened back to the episode and um, I am talking so fast and that's just because I'm, I was so excited to speak with Ingrid and talk to her about her work, which is incredible. Um, and all the different things we were, the topics we were talking about, I was just so vivified by everything she had to say. So forgive me, dear listener, for my, um, especially this episode, rapid talking, um, but it'll be worth it, I promise, to, to hear everything that England has to say. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you have not already, I hope you enjoy her amazing books. Here's my conversation with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Okay, well, I'm so thrilled to um, finally get to talk to you about just about your experiences and your beautiful work. Um, and I usually start, that's funny, I usually start the podcast uh, by asking this big question about, you know, who you are, how would you describe yourself beyond what you do, but beyond like what we know you as, as a writer. Um, but I kind of, when I'm thinking about your story, I kind of want to ask you more about um your experience of sort of losing your identity completely when you lost your memory from a um, head injury. Um, so I find that so fascinating that you write about this, about just sort of not even being attached to any one identity. Um, and I just wanted to hear sort of your, I know you've talked about this probably more than you want to, but <laughs> it's really interesting, I think, in the context of just sort of losing your sense of self for a time. Yeah. I just want to hear you talk about that. Yeah. I know that there was a time for me where getting Alzheimer's was the worst thing that I could imagine. And I I was always just terrified of losing my memory, not being able to write uh, and just losing a sense of self. And so, so when I did lose my memory, you know, of course I, I didn't have a, this, recollection that having Alzheimer's or losing my memory was was a fear that I had. And instead, it was losing my memory was this very joyful experience. um, And it felt magical and magnetic. And it it really felt like it, it wasn't losing something as I thought that it as I, you know, had previously thought that it would be, but it was actually gaining access to a deeper part of myself or to a deeper sense of being that was completely unattached from identity or history or family or, you know, anything at all, language even. So, it, so, um, and I don't even know what I would describe myself (laughs) as in those moments when I didn't have a memory, but I know that there was uh, a softness and that there was a curiosity about the world and that there was this, I don't know, this, this magnetic sense of just being alive and feeling connected to everything. It's so fascinating. Um, hearing you talk about that and and I've all I don't remember where I, I read it or heard it but somebody else recently um had similar experience and said the exact same thing sort of about this um this almost uh joyfulness or freedom you know um in that and I just think it's so I'm endlessly fascinated by this sort of this question of like who we are and how we describe ourselves because we're always trying to I just feel like as you know humans we're trying to belong 
and find our place, right? And we're like, oh, I'm this, I'm that, so I can belong here or there. Um, and it's just really interesting and just fascinating to hear your experience about that. And I just I think it's interesting to sort of live in the present, right? And not be so yeah. tied to all these things. Yeah, I also think with with those experiences that we don't have access to, we always imagine them a specific way that has to do with our point of view. And then when we are in them, it's just not what we thought at all. And I, I think uh, losing your memory might be different for a lot of different people. Um, and it might have to do with the circumstances and who you're surrounded, you know, by what, you know, glimpses of reality you still have and, and what your day to day is like. For me, having amnesia and essentially, you know, in time, finding my way back to my apartment and having that uh, solitude and being able to, you know, have those things, you know, a house to, to, to be in and, you know, food in the, in the pantries and, and everything like that, that it just, it was, it was really um, a gift. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't um, take it for granted, but I would have otherwise thought that it was this, this horrible thing and that it would be traumatic and that it would be tremendously, you know, um, tragic for me. And instead it was, it was just like the, the best thing that happened. That's so interesting. And like, yeah, like you're saying that applies to so much in life, right. Where we like anticipate something being terrible or wonderful. And, and, you know, we can be surprised by that. And and once something actually happens. um, Yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so fascinating. I wanted to ask you about, Oh, your books are so just magnificent and beautifully written. Um, just you know, page turning, all the all the wonderful things. And I wanted to ask you about so, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Your first book was a novel. You decided to make it fiction, um, and The Man Who Moved Clouds as 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 a memoir. And they both draw upon your life experiences and family. Um, and I was just wondering you know, what the choices were behind, you know, deciding the first book would be fiction versus memoir and and vice versa. When I was uh, writing The Fruit of the Drunken Tree, I, I, my initial thought was that I would write it as nonfiction, and I tried to write it as an essay. And there was a way in which the essay itself just kind of wouldn't go on beyond a page or a page and a half. Sometimes when you're writing and you're approaching a personal story, there can be some emotional or psychological blocks. And for me, I feel that I wasn't ready to to tell that story as it had happened in real life. And, you know, the, the backbone of the story that Fruit of the Drunken Trees is based on is this kidnapping attempt, and it's something that happened uh, to my family, and it's one of the reasons why we ended up leaving Colombia in the 90s. So, but, you know, the, the moment that I started to treat it as fiction and I started to transform the situation, even if that backbone remained the same, it was it was this way for for me to talk about the things that I couldn't talk about. It was it was this way for me to access the emotional truth of the experience without having to divulge the literal truth of the experience. With uh, with the man who could move clouds, I I just you know I I. I love the story as as it, as it is, and it was just—it's one of those stories that because it just involves such amazing—I um, don't know—that you know that the things that happened in real life are so amazing. Um, I loved that, you know, uh, you know, people said in my family and other people said that my grandfather could move clouds and he was a curandero and he had 
a business card. And the fact that I had a business card of his um, that said like, uh, you know, Rafael Contreras Alonso, homeopath, cures you of all kinds of illnesses, diabetes, obesity, sinusitis, cancer, and witchcraft, you know. Love that, that. yeah. That was his business card. Amazing. So having access to a material like that um, just meant that I that it really needed to be nonfiction because you really it's just there's no way to make that story better. It's it's to me yeah. as a storyteller, it's perfect the way that it happened. It's it, that makes so much sense, and I'm I'm so glad that you that you made that memoir uh, or you know kept it as memoir. Um, and it, but what's interesting to me too about Fruit of the Drunken Tree, I think it works so well in the way that you wrote it um, and that it is fiction because. I don't know, um, Petrona. So, so you for people who, listening who have not read it yet, it um, it goes back and forth between two points of views um, with two girls and um, with, who are in different classes and you know completely different experiences in in Colombia, and um, and I thought it was just so wonderful the way that that worked. And I was thinking, you know, that would have been really probably more challenging to do if you were doing this as nonfiction, right? Because yeah. it'd be hard to embody Petrona so well, you know? Um, so I think yeah. it works so well. Yeah. And I had questions about who in that, in that sense, like who the story belongs to, if I was going to tell it as nonfiction. And the other thing that I was considering was that I wanted to protect people who are in the story. Um, and so it just it just kind of all meant that fiction was the answer. But you're mm -hmm. right that these two points of view and having these two young girls who have um, a friendship, you know, for whom the, the crisis of the of the country starts to, you know, first kind of corrupt and then kind of ruin their friendship, that I, I couldn't have gotten access to the yeah the the telling of of these two different lives that you can lead in Colombia based on what class you belong to. Colombia is a very classist country, and people who are in higher classes experience a completely different country than people who are in the lower classes. And to me because I had grown up seeing that um, my my parents' family were, were both uh, lived in very poor areas, but we lived in the city, we lived in the capital, and we were middle class. So to me, knowing how different those two experiences were, um, it felt like that was something that I could really accomplish in fiction. And as you're saying, like I, in order to to do that story in nonfiction, I would have had to, I don't know, like drag people into the light who, by doing that, would yeah. have been harmed. Um, so yeah. it was just really not. It it wasn't an option, I guess. Really. Well, totally, and I think you know it's so tricky, right? With with when you're writing nonfiction to really represent somebody's story. And, you know, and, and there's all these ethics too, of like trying to, you know, I, I run into this a lot and just my own writing and I want to tell somebody else's story, but it's like, well, what, how much of that is mine to tell, you know? And, mm -hmm. but with, with this, with this fictionalizing of, you know, and I know you drew on, on real situations and people, but you really sink into, you get to know Petrona as the character, you know, um, well, I'm, I know I'm just sort of repeating what we're talking about, but it really, <laughs> I just want to emphasize that how I, I thought how beautifully it worked that way. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so excited to talk to you also about language and the way that you um, embody, you know, Spanish in English text. Um, mm. it, to me, this is one of the most exciting things about your writing. I mean, there's, it, it works, your writing is, incredible and, and all these different facets but um as someone who you know for me spanish and english are my two languages and um reading your work and and i just don't think enough people do this you know so so well where you um you you use so many of the spanish sort of syntax and phrasings um but in english which i think you know as someone who speaks spanish is really exciting but i also think 
from someone, maybe someone who doesn't speak Spanish is such a beautiful sort of window into what the language feels like, you know, um, versus just translating it, you know, word for word. Um, and yeah, just your, your attentiveness to the language, I think is just so, um, so wonderful. Thank um, you. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I don't know if I have a fully formed question around that, but I was, you know, I was talking to, I was telling you before we were recording, I was talking to my dad about Fruit of the Drunken Tree and he, he said the same thing, you know, he was really noticing that um, and how, how exciting that is to someone who speaks both languages, you know? Um, and I was just, I guess my question is sort of what were you, um, when, as you were writing, were you very like intentional about that or were you just like, I'm gonna write the way it feels? Um, sort of, yeah, what were your, what were your thoughts about that? I, I love so much that you noticed that. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that when, let's see, when I was, when I was writing, I was really, I guess in my, in my heart and in my mind, that I'm in two languages, the, you know, English being the one that I know the output of the story is going to be in. And to me, English is the language of my migration. Um, so we yeah, left yeah. early on. Uh, when I was uh, 14, we left Colombia and we went to Venezuela. And I had been studying English at school as my second language. But this, when we when we left, I started to write in, in, in English in notebooks as little stories to myself. And I guess I was trying to save some of the things that we had lost or I, that I felt I had lost in when we when we left Colombia. And I started to write poems in English. And I'm, I'm very curious about what these might have sounded like, because I know that at the time, my understanding of English grammar was probably very loose. But I was doing all of these language experiments that, you know, as as someone who's, you know, on their own, just playing with a language that they're actually not speaking to anyone else <laughs> with, because I wasn't speaking English with anybody else. Huh. Uh, that those would have been just, I yeah, I wonder what they what they would have sounded like. Um, but, you know, later as I as I came to the US and I was and I was writing, because I had this idea of English as the language of migration, when I started to write creatively, it started to feel that I that I really wanted to experiment with having Spanish, but in in sheep's clothing, I guess. Mm, I love that. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so so when I'm composing, I am doing this cross translation that happens internally. And I am thinking of phrasings in Spanish. And sometimes I transliterate them into English. So word by word, I will just write them in English, as you might say them in Spanish. And it creates this, this kind of strange poetry that I really love. And sometimes I also play with the grammar, the grammatical rules in English, and I try to uh, make them fit the Spanish grammatical rules. So I'm really just trying to create this, yeah, this 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 language that internally is Spanish and externally is English. Totally, that's exactly what it feels like. And I'm just, I'm so, like I said, I'm so excited that you that you decided to to do that. And um, and it just shows your deep care and attention to language itself, you know? I think it's really interesting to just like these, the nuances of language in that, how it's just changing. Like, you know, if you move to, like when I moved to the States from Spain, you know, like I, I came to the States with one Spanish and now it's sort of evolved in a lot of ways. And every year I go back and, you know, I, I'm learning new phrases that like just are new, you know, because <laughs> they're new mm -hmm. to, the, to the language or to, to you know, to the um, sort of the culture. Um, I'm just so fascinated by that too. And do you ever experience that? Yeah, that happens to me. Yeah. When I go back to Colombia, it's clear to me how much language can be a fossil if you stop using it or if you leave a country. The way that I say things 
is what we would have done in the 90s and and so i'm when i go back i'm i'm very much aware that i'm a fossil that it's i'm a relic of time and people do look at me that way sometimes when i say something because i will be using you know lingo from the 90s um and it's yeah i think i think in colombia it's also like we've had so many waves of migration that I'm always interested in this idea that when people come back to Colombia, that it would be obvious for the people who have stayed when you would have left based on what language you're using. Um, totally. And, yeah, yeah, I can I try to, to learn the, the new things and I'm always fascinated and very interested in, in knowing what the, what the new ways of speaking are and how we're saying things. Um, but I, I, I think I'm also interested in the, in the hybrid use of language that happens in the US as well, because we have, you know, I'm someone who came uh, and I, you know, to the US when I, I was 18. So I had a, you know, I had a fully formed um, Spanish use, and then I had fully formed English use separately. But I'm I'm fascinated by people who, for example, like grew up in the U.S. and and their parents spoke to them Spanish, or and so their understanding of Spanish is oral. Um, yes, and has to yes. Do with their home life, and when they go out into the world and are talking to you know friends of theirs or like their community, that use of English and Spanish is very different than what I do because I have a, a, a different, you know, history with the two languages. Um, uh, totally. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by the way that that language is just very flexible and the way that it it reflects, yeah, all of our movements and, and what it all meant and, you know, when we left. And I think it, it, it does end up being a, a sort of personal map of movement. You so beautifully said. I'm, yeah, I'm totally fascinated by it too. <laughs> um, yeah, and also just how different Spanish is, you know, depending on where you come from, you know, and how my, yeah. my, my stepmother is Argentine. And, you know, my dad learned Spanish in Colombia and then I learned it in Spain, you know, so it's like three different Spanishes, you know, and we're that's very different. That's very, all very different. Different, different accents, different, um, different, you know, just words and phrases. And, you know, it's funny because my dad growing up, he would sometimes translate the Spanish between my stepmom and I, like she'll say a phrase and I'll, or I'll say a phrase and he'll, he'll start, they'll start laughing. Cause it's like, you know, it's kind of vulgar in, 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 uh, in Argentina, you know, but it's not in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I also, about language, I also wanted to ask you about um, a part of the book that you are talking about um, having anxiety, um, which is a huge part of my life too. So I felt really, really, really related to that as well. And, um, but I found it so fascinating the way you were talking about sort of the language of illness, right? And, and how, you know, um, you would have to translate, you know, whether it was your sister or your, um, mental illness, you had to just, you know, um, translate it to your mother um, as because she would note it more as spiritual sickness. And okay. it sort of was making me think about um, sort of like how important is it to name, to name these things, right? And um, because I, I was thinking about how in, in your book, in, the, in your memoir, the way that you describe and bring us into what it feels like to have anxiety and live in the body with anxiety is so visceral. And um, I felt so accurate to the experience that it was like, well, how important is it to put a name to it then? You know, because it was right. it's sort of like as writers, we're always thinking too, like, how do we uh, not, you know, say the thing? How do we make them feel the thing? And you do that so well, I'm sort of babbling. But I guess my question is sort of like to you, how important is it to name it and to, you know, um, say whether it's spiritual, spiritual sickness or anxiety or, or whatnot. Yeah. I, one of the things that I was thinking about was how in the communities take care of each other, no matter what the word for, for the thing is. And 
I, and the care is different. So uh, in the book, I'm talking about my sister at the time had a very um, critical eating disorder and she was at an inpatient program and, you know, we were really worried about her and things had gotten bad enough where she couldn't, there was a time where she couldn't walk for more than half an hour. She would have a heart attack. Like that's how, you know, how much she had put her body through um, the stress of, of not eating. Um, and yeah, this, the eating disorder um, and what it was all, you know, causing in her body. Um, and, you know, when my mother called it a, a spiritual sickness, there was, it's, it's, it's a similar, it's a similar trying, trying to take care of her, but it just looks different. So I, in my, in my brain, cause I was, I was, we were going to my sister's therapy sessions with her and I would be translating for everyone. So I would be translating when my sister was saying, and then I would translate what the therapist was saying, and I would translate for my mom, and then I would say something, and I would translate myself into Spanish. And this was all for so that my mother knew what was going on because she only speaks Spanish. Um, how, you know, we, you know, when in those therapy sessions, the question was, you know, where did this all begin for you, or what are the things that happened in the past that we should be looking at in the present? When my mother was was uh, thinking about my sister and trying to help her as a as a curandera, um, the question that she was focusing on was was similar, um, and you know she called it the eating disorder ghost, and she was asking me, you know, like where does where does this ghost live, or where did where did your sister pick up this ghost? And I would tell her, oh, it happened when we when we crossed the border. So maybe it lives in, in spaces of transition. And there was something about when you call it a ghost and suddenly all of this language is available for it. Like, what is what does the ghost want? What is the how does the ghost behave? Like, what are the tools in its in its power? Where does it live? Um, it just it suddenly makes other things possible that I think are not possible in therapy. Because I, you know, yeah. having, having, you know, sat through so many of those sessions, um, the thing that, that she would kind of be told over and over again is that she was doing it because she was trying to con control something that was in her power to control. And, right? And so it's, it's an yeah. answer in a way. But it, I don't know if it a lot of the times leads to anything. Sometimes answers are not useful. Um, whereas I think asking questions about, you know, a ghost in that language um, and giving questions, sometimes that can lead to somewhere else. Uh, yeah, so I, so to go back to, to your original question, I don't know if it's important, but I know that different languages open different things. And depending on what someone is going through, that if they've exhausted the language of Western medicine, it could be useful to go to different types of other traditional medicines and see what that language can open. Totally. That's so well said. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really interested in this, you know, too, just like the, the these nuances of sort of the language and, um, what we call things and and how so I, I don't know I don't know I just I think I think I'm at I'm kind of obsessed with it because I think for so long I always felt there was something you know off in me and just like uh, really it's anxiety you know and I'm sort of always like sort of handing over all these you know uh experiences and griefs and all these things to my my therapist like you know trying to get a diagnosis you know and I'm like right. really does that really matter so much you know what it is right <laughs> um yeah, so that's so interesting, um, and I get yeah. about it so beautifully. Yeah, and I, I just think there's it's such a different it's it's such a different culture, right? Like we in Western medicine, you have the what is it called the book with all the diagnoses? Oh yes, yes, yes. I, the, I forget, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's this yeah. big book Bible of all the 
terms yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. all the, yeah. the terms of all the things that can be wrong you yeah. know, with <laughs> you and it's just this you know trying to create a topography for for mental illness and i think that in my you know maybe like to curanderos there's a way in which all of it could be a ghost and it doesn't matter yeah yeah what it is um and you know one of the things that i i realized while talking to my mother and also receiving some of her care while you know for my anxiety disorder was um this idea of when you know something like ptsd she would call it like the there's it's a it's the ghost of something um, that is manifesting and reappearing. And so asking the, you know, knowing what the ghost wants and knowing how to answer what the ghost wants so that you can cast it out or so that you can have a conversation with it, uh, felt, it just feels very different. Than, yeah. Yeah. Than, than just kind of receiving a diagnosis. Uh, but again, but I, I, I think it can be so personal where for, you know, maybe for someone else receiving the diagnosis would be, uh, you know, uh, an experience that can, that can deepen their understanding of, of what's happening for them. And it can open certain doors for me. It just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't that it wasn't offering me anything more than having a word on paper that is just describing. Totally. I, right. And, and, also, and also what you're saying about the way you're describing sort of the way that your family, um, you know, just, uh, uh, um, I don't know the word I'm trying to, trying to find the word for it, but, um, well, your experience, you know, your mother's experience of the same thing. And it's like, and the way she treats it or your grandfather, I find so beautiful, you know, and I, I'm just in my own little way thinking about two like parts of my family that are sort of like that too. And my um, my um, dear friend I've known since I was a baby, Anna in Spain, who's like a second mom to me. And she, you know, is very different from me in that she doesn't, you know, uh, believe really in medicine, in traditional medicines and things like this. And 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 I do, you know, like I, I take a lot of medicine for my, for my anxiety and for my asthma and all that, but I find it so, there's something so comforting when I'm around her and the way the care she takes, you know, where she, if I, I have an asthma flare up, how she will just rub my feet the right way, you know, and, and she really, mm -hmm. it, for her, she really believes that's the way to heal. And I, and I always feel so um, like safe in that. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. Um, yeah. I just think it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I grew up with my mother, giving us different, you know, you know, gathering different plants for different things and giving us different, I don't know, you know, uh, like potions to drink, you know, she would just yes, kind of yes. make like a mash of, of leaves, or she would kind of make a tea, just different concoctions. And it, she would just give us these things. And a lot of the times, you know, I had no idea what she, <laughs> what she was giving. Me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, you know, there's just like this inherent trust that she she knows what she's doing, um, and I yeah I th I think my dad also described at some point like she there was uh, a woman who was over at her house and she was cutting some vegetables and then she just she cut her hand open pretty deeply and. It seemed, I, I'm not sure this part of the story, like why they didn't want to go to a doctor, but you know, the situation was that she didn't want to go to a doctor to, to get it sewn up. And my dad said that my mom put in coffee, grounded coffee inside the wound. And I am not sure why, or, you know, like, I don't know what that does medically. I haven't like looked into, into what that is. Um, but they just knew it. <laughs> they knew that was what you're just, supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She just kind of, you know, through that, through that history of, you know, growing up with, with my grandfather and like, you just kind of pick up what plants are, you know, what the functions are and what you do in, in different situations. But this woman's hand, you know, didn't get infected. 
and it I guess like the coffee would have absorbed into her I'm sure like we're gonna get tons of comments about <laughs> what this could possibly be. Or yeah, people saying like I don't know. Anyway. Um, I, I don't know, I love it better. though. <laughs> she got better. Um and the the wounds like healed up and she yeah, she never had to go to a doctor. Yeah, I, I just I, I love hearing these stories. And I, I mean, I grew up also, my mother was very much she, you know, she's very much the same spirit of like, you know, I, I my first I had uh, for some I was roller skating, you know, I was 13 or something, and I got a severe wound cut. And she was like, she was just like stitching it up herself, you know, like, no, yeah, terrible. Yeah, but it was that's my mom, you know, same thing. She's like, No, we don't need to go to the doctor. And, you know, uh, years later, when I was at the doctor, they're like, you really should have got stitches for this. I'm like, yeah, it works. <laughs> it worked. Yeah. But I have a big scar now, but it's okay. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's so interesting. You know, it's, it's another sort of way of, of, uh, of living with your different cultures too, you know, and, and, and right. that mix, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wonder too, if there's this, the stress of Western medicine or, or that they there can be historically, at the stress of, of Western medicine. And so you have communities who are who are taking care of themselves and who know traditional ways of, of doing things that have been passed down. And yeah, that's been around with us for a long, long time. So, so true. And yeah, and like you were, you know, my, my, I was just gonna say Anna in Spain too, I was talking about, she's the same way. She'll just like put a drink in front of me and I don't know what's been in it, but I know it's gonna be good and it's gonna be good for me. <laughs> and uh. And, and she never gets sick, you know? It's just where she yeah. does, she's like better right away. And she looks like 20 years younger than she than her age. And I'm like, this woman is yeah. doing something right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> something <laughs> is working, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I did wanna just mention, and then we can, um, you know, maybe we don't have time to go into it, but I, I just wanted to say how much I love the way that you also describe that the way the past experiences sort of lodge in the body and you said, I wrote down this line that you, you wrote in your book, memoir, um, how do you convince the body which has decided to be afraid? Fear once taught the body survival, teachings leave their echoes. Um, and I thought that was so beautifully written um, and said because that is so true. And I think it can take us a whole lifetime to, to kind of realize that, right? And, mm -hmm. and our body knows so much more than our, than our mind does sometimes. Yeah. I was I was thinking about anxiety and how or just even panic attacks and how just I guess I was thinking about my mother calling anxiety and panic attacks like a, a ghost, the manifestation of a ghost. Um, and yeah, thinking across like the two types of medicine, how when you have a panic attack, it's this manifestation of the past, you know, ghost is another word for history or ghost is another word for the past. Um, and that in that manifestation, there was a reason why initially you were afraid. And there was a reason initially why you were apprehensive of certain things. And so it, it, it made sense to me that when there's, you know, certain things that like remind you of that time or that are, you know, triggers of that time that it would flare up. And it's basically this knowledge that lives in your body that is trying to protect you um, and that is trying to keep you safe. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if we think of anxiety or panic attacks in that way, but I, I started to think of them in that way as just something that are there's just trying to keep you safe and yeah. And it, it just, yeah. it, 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 when it's fear, it just, it lives, lives in your body and it's just very hard to, it's such a, it's such an intense kind of teaching that is imprinted in your body that it's really hard to undo even when you're, when you're safe. Um, totally. Your kind of doesn't, doesn't catch up to that knowledge immediately. Exactly. And I, I sort of, you know, come to the place where I'm sort of like, okay, I know this is going to be, this is going to live alongside me, you know, forever. I'm not going to get yeah. rid of this, but how can I sort of find tools to help me through it, you know? And, yeah. and, and that's kind of 
where I've decided, all right, I'm not going to ever get rid of this anxiety, you know, but there's ways yeah. to, to work with it. <laughs> yeah. It's just a different way of being in the world. Um, oh, totally. I think after, after writing the book, I, I arrived to, to, I guess what you're saying, and also um, this idea that having past a traumatic, you know, something happening in your background is, isn't worse than not having that. Because um, mm. I think as I was writing the book and I was, um, I just discovered in myself this, this sense that I was almost like jealous of people who, who just had gone through their lives and, and nothing too bad had happened to them. And I always kind of like looked on to their experience of how amazing it must be to kind of like navigate your day without having these spikes of anxiety. And at some point as I was writing the book, I just realized that I don't actually believe that. I don't believe that, you know, having something traumatic happen to you, that that makes you worse or that that's somehow, uh, yeah, like a, a worse life. Um, so once I realized that, then I had to, you know, accept, acknowledge and embrace that it that having anxiety or any kind of you know, mental instability or illness. It's a different way of being in the world and you've been marked by experience in a different way. And it it, it means that we just move through the world differently. Um, and there's, it just has a different language to it. Um, that's, a, that's, also, that's, so, that's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm very comforted by that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, <laughs> got excited. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I also think it's, um, I remember somebody once telling me, maybe it was a therapist years and years ago, when I was first starting to sort of really understand my anxiety, and like you said, where it came from. And, and she said, you know, anxiety isn't bad. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's not inherently bad, you know. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I've sort of thought about that way, too. It's not like, it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. That's what it is. It's not a bad thing, though. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about dreams, <laughs> because that's also a prominent part of the book, of the memoir. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm very fascinated with dreams and sort of what they can tell us. And, and, uh, and I just wanted to ask you sort of, you know, now in your, in your life, you know, what do, what do dreams mean to you and how do you read them, like when you have a dream that feels like a premonition, you know, do you take action on anything or, you know, sort of, yeah, just what your feelings are around dreams. I've, I've always just really loved, you know, when it comes to dreams, I, I've always really loved my family's understanding of dreams as the true state of how you're doing. Um, and I've, I've always loved this about my family, how when we're saying hello to each other, instead of saying, how are you today? We will say, what did you dream? And it's this way, you know, of asking how that person is, but you know, the, the deeper question of like how you are. And I love that you just receive a story in exchange of that question. And there's, there's something in that story that just tells you how that person is doing really I, I think of dreams even today in my life as, you know, in the same way where I, I keep track of them when I, you know, to, to all my, the people that I love, I ask them what they've dreamt. And I remember what people tell me and I kind of keep track of what other people are dreaming about. And it's just this way of, of remembering people and then seeing people in a different way. Um, and I, you know, it's also for myself, right? Like I, I see myself in a different way. I think when we dream, we're, we're communicating or, you know, dreams come from a more mysterious part of ourselves that is estranged from our waking life. And so it's this sometimes like very kind of uh, uncomfortable self or this, yeah, this, this strange self that we don't know fully. Um, so I, yeah, I even, you know, think of my dreams in that way as just 
being in contact or communicating or knowing more about that that other self that I don't know that well. That's so, so again, so beautifully said. You know, I think that's that's exactly it. You know, and how it's, it always amazes me. Like I have a dream and I'm suddenly like enlightened by something I'm like, Oh, that's how I really feel. I wasn't aware of that, but that is how I really feel. And it like mm-hmm. shows me that, you know, and, um, and yeah. It's, and also I was thinking about, I mean, I, I could talk about dreams for an hour, so I will wrap this up. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm like endlessly fascinated by it because ever since I was a little girl, I've had these dreams where like, you know, I will have a conversation in my dream and then it'll happen like months later, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and it's funny cause I'm always sort of like when I have a dream that was really intense, like with, with somebody that I care about, I'm always like, is this a premonition or is this just me working this out in my subconscious? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Which yeah. one is it? Um, but, but I was also just thinking about how, um, uh, I know in the book, you know, with your mother, I don't think it was a dream, right? But she, but when when you, um, she basically warned you not to go get pick up that dress. That is how you ended up getting your um, head accident. It makes, yeah. And uh, I was remembering just recently how my mom one time like had a dream about my sister. Um, my sister was going to go to Hawaii with some boyfriend, and my mother was just like, you can't go, you can't go. I had this dream, you know, and just started crying. It was like, no, like, and, uh, and it reminded me of that. It was like, <laughs> yep, the moms know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, yeah, my dad also called me one day cause he, he'd had a nightmare and he, his request was that I don't go to the beach that day. And he wouldn't tell me what the, what the dream was that he had. He was just like, just promise me that you will not go to the beach today. Um, I think after I didn't, you know, when my mother told me like, don't stay away from this dress, don't go pick it up. I didn't listen to her that time. And the reason was that I just loved this, this black dress that I was going to pick up, you know, when I, when I had my accident and lost my memory. I loved it so much that I just couldn't find it in myself to listen to, <laughs> to her. <laughs> uh, but I think after after the accident, I'm more I'm more open to listening. <laughs> there you go. Was, was she like I told you so? <laughs> she was. She was. Yeah. I think she wasn't, she wasn't fully surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you just two kind of random questions that I ask most people, um, if that's okay. One of them is around, you know, just sort of asking, what is an act of kindness in your life that you received at some point that ended up being transformative in some way or just really had a big impact on you? Mm. You know, this this may not be... um... I, it's just like what came to mind, but I I remember that I went to Macondo, which is Andres Cisneros's writing conference, and I just remember being so thankful to be to just being there. And I was taking this workshop with Leslie Marmon Silco, and I was meeting all of these wonderful writers, and I just felt so thankful. Um, I remember at some point I met Sandra, and I told her how I felt. And I, and I said, like, um, I think I asked her something like, what advice do you have for me or something like that? Um, and she said, pay it forward. And it was just like this, Mm. just a beautiful, um, thing that she gave me that I just, I, I have kept thinking about that moment ever since. Um, and I, I think it's guided my, you know, being in the world and my writing books and the way that I am in community with with the writing world and this idea of paying it forward and just, you know, sharing kindness with people or like sharing resources or the things that you know with people, not as a trade, but in this kind of faithful or just like a, a gesture of faith that you pay it forward and then, you know, that person will pay it forward. And it's this, uh, I don't know, network of generosity. That's so lovely. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, so thank that, you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what came to mind, but I don't know if that's a... And that's a be answer, beautiful, really beautiful answer. Absolutely. And I, I really um, get that sense. I know, I, I don't really, you know, know you very well. But when I, I follow you on Instagram, you know, and I, I feel like you're always um, cheerleading other people, you know, and, and there's, it's such a beautiful thing to see, you know, when writers and artists do that, because I think, you know, in the society, we can be sort of I feel like it's such a like scarcity mindset that so many people have like, Oh, you yeah. know, like there's not enough for all of us. And, and it's, it's, it's sad. I think that's, that's a lot of times the case, but it's, so it's mm -hmm. really beautiful when I see people that are like, screw that I'm celebrating everybody. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah. you definitely seem to be one of those people. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I love yeah. hearing that. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Last question. Can you share a piece of art, so it could be anything, book, album, film, anything that's important to you. Hmm. Um, book, art, or film. You know, I, um, I was in Chicago and I asked uh, a bookseller there for some recommendations and they gave me um, Chronology of Water Oh, video yes, yes. And I, I'd read it before, but it it had this beautiful cover and I had to buy it again. And then I, I was on the plane and I didn't have other reading materials. And so I ended up rereading this memoir. Um, and I was just, you know, wowed all over again by that book. I just, I love the way that it's constructed. Um, it It feels like one of those books where you you enter it and you will be for sure completely different by the time that you exit the story. Um, and it just, oh, it's a book that just rearranges you. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think because I just, um, I think I finished it a, a couple of weeks ago, um, but that experience of finishing it, it a second time and then feeling rearranged again um, is something that I'm just so, thankful for and just so wowed by. So if anybody has, you know, not read this book, I, I highly recommend. Absolutely. And I will say, I think your books do the very same thing, you know, so keep, oh, hope you keep you. writing all these wonderful books. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ingrid. It was such a pleasure to chat. And um, next time I'm in San Francisco, I'll send you a note. Hopefully we can go get coffee or something. We can talk more yeah, about dreams and <laughs> I would love that. Awesome. Okay. Have a Thank great you so day. much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Museums of the Artist is audio produced by Aaron Mooring and theme music is by Madison Ward.